Good morning. It's good to see everyone out this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As I've already indicated, it's good to see everyone out. It's a bit rainy this morning, but just good to have the number that we do. Good to have visitors with us. If you are, you're a delighted guest. You're, uh, we're delighted that you're here. You're an honored guest. We ask that you stick around for just a few moments afterward that we might get to just talk with you a little bit more, get to know you, uh, and, and just for a few moments before you leave. Uh, for those that are usually here, it's just good to be able to worship God together, study His Word, and hopefully for the next few moments we'll be able to gain something more as we continue to study God's Word and see what, what He has for us to learn. If you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 6, I just want to read a few verses here. It says, Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Paul writes to the Corinthians speaking about their spiritual forefathers, those uh, Israelites that were in the wilderness that God guided. And as he begins to describe what they did and what sins they committed, he says in verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. Now what he says there in verse 11 upon whom the ends of the ages have come that is those within this Christian dispensation. That is those who come after The church has been established. Those who have come after the gospel has been preached to all the corners of the earth. And so it's talking to us. And so as he's writing to Christians in the first century, he's also writing to Christians in the 21st century. And he says, don't you look like these people. Don't do the same things they did because they were destroyed. There's a few sins that God talks about here, that Paul uh, talks about here as as he's guided by the Holy Spirit. Look at all of the paths that Paul, people can take, that the Israelites took God's people, which led to hell and destruction. And so therefore, look at all the things that Paul says we need to be wary of and careful of. There's one thing in particular, though, that I want to focus on for our our portion of the study this morning, and that is in verse 10. You notice what what he's speaking against there? Don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These people were destroyed for what? For grumbling. And we're going to look at a few passages where you see the consequences and how dire they were. And therefore, how seriously God looked at this kind of sin. Just grumbling. I think a lot of times when we think about complaining, murmuring, grumbling, as your translations may say, we look at that and we say, it's not really that big of a deal. What what does it say at the end of verse 10 again? But that they were destroyed by the destroyer. It seems like God thinks that this is a pretty big deal. And so let's look at why God speaks so seriously about this particular sin as we look at uh, specifically, uh, especially the the congregation that wandered through the wilderness, uh, the Israelites that God was guiding for 40 years, and all of the many times that they (laughs) 
grumbled really against him. And we'll make that point as we continue on. But let's just think about this for a moment as we think about how seriously God speaks of and looks at the sin of complaining and grumbling. Turn over to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. This is the story of Korah's rebellion. And just for the first few moments, I want to look at just a few things that you see here in Korah's rebellion because I think that it really just gives us a good example of how complainers are today. I don't really think much has changed. When you look over at Numbers chapter 16 in verse 1, it says, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. Now we're going to stop. I know that's in the middle of a sentence there, but we're going to stop there. What does this look like when, when you have a complainer, a grumbler, a murmurer in God's congregation, in the assembly of God? Well, this looks like, for one, someone who seeks others to complain with. Just from the very beginning, there's going to be more people that come into this. But just from the very beginning, what does Korah do? It says that he takes a few people, Dathan and Abiram, and usually those three names are the ones that are most associated with, with or at least most of the blame in this rebellion and, and receive much of the uh, most immediate consequences that God sends for this rebellion. But it says that they took action together. From the very outset, what you find is that a complainer is someone who goes and seeks others to complain with. It's someone who seeks others to try and maybe sympathize with their complaint. One of the most annoying things today in our culture are the people that, you know, we're all about looking for truth, right? We're all about getting down to, to the facts and, and looking at the reality. But most of the time, what you see in our culture is people who just go to an echo chamber. And what I mean by that is they go to a group of people that they know are going to agree with them. Or they go to a group of people that they know are only going to be the yes men, that are only going to hype them up or edify them in what they're doing, whether it's bad or not. And so what do they do? They go to the same people that they always do that they know are just going to listen. And I say on either end, I don't think that's a good thing, whether you're the complainer or the one who allows that. Now, we're, we're going to talk more about this. I don't think that there's no room to, to maybe voice some issues that we may have. In fact, we're going to end with how do we voice this appropriately? But this ain't it. <laughs> when you just go and you try to spread strife about a brother or a sister in the congregation, or when you go and you just really, you don't care about what contention may arise from this. You're just going to complain without, without anything to add except for your issues. You, you, you we're following after the spirit of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. We're following after the same kind of, of sin that God says it will be destroyed by the destroyer. And so, first of all, it's someone who seeks to complain with others. Now, not only that, but in verse 2, continuing on, they took action and they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, men of renown. So not only was Korah okay with just taking Dathan and Abiram on with him and a few other people that probably were close associates, close friends, but now he's gone to others and he's spreading the desire to complain with others. He encourages others to complain. There's a lot of things that we need to be about encouraging one another of and for. We need to be edifying one another to study the scriptures more. We need to be edifying one another more to evangelize in the community. We need to be edifying and encouraging one another to do a lot of things. This, though, this is a serious problem. But you do see this quite, a few, quite often. People 
that have an issue with the way something's going, people that may have an issue with another brother or sister in Christ, and, and they go to someone maybe naive, they go to someone that has really no business knowing any of this information, and they start saying, what do you think about this guy? Or what do you think about this woman? Did you hear about this? I mean, doesn't this just, doesn't this just get you fuming? Now, I'll just say, as I go through all this, one of the reasons that I go through this lesson is because I think I, I need this as well. I, I think this is something that I sometimes struggle with. Because especially as a preacher, you know that there are sometimes criticisms that come and you get a little bit frustrated. It's very easy to fall into that trap. Christians cannot be the kind of people that fall into this trap. It needs to be that when people come in to this congregation, they see a group of people that don't fall prey to the same easy temptations that everyone else does but rather people that bear with one another. This is not someone who bears with one another. It's someone who's causing strife, and it's someone who is purposefully causing strife. They're trying to bring others in and trying to make others think, wow, this is something that we need to cause an issue about. This is something that we need to be stirred up about. I think that you may see something like this in Acts when you have the, the Hellenistic Jews that began a complaint because some of the people were being overlooked uh, at the very beginnings of the church there in Acts chapter 6. I don't think necessarily that they went as far as Korah. But I do think the fact that you have this idea of grumbling amidst the assembly, that's a problem. There is a way to deal with these things if we have a legitimate issue rightly. But this is not it. To encourage the same complaint in others when they have no business knowing about that. And so just following after the spirit of Korah and the rest of his and the rest of his acolytes. But then you continue in verse 3. Not only do they seek others to complain with, the same accomplices that they have, not only do they encourage others to complain, but in verse 3, they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So what do they do? They finally announce this complaint, bring it forward to everyone's attention with really no solution. All they're trying to do is cause enough strife to get people to look at Moses and look at Aaron and say, you know what, I don't think I want to follow them anymore. I'm pretty sure I know what Korah wants here. It seems to me, it seems pretty, pretty certainly that he wants the priesthood that Aaron had, that he wants the same kind of leadership that Moses had. They were already blessed as, as, as uh, this specific tribe of Levi. These people were already blessed more than most of Israel because they were actually able to participate in a little bit more in the, in the tabernacle worship and then later on the temple worship. They were able to aid in that. And so they had a lot of blessings being of the tribe of Levi, but it wasn't enough for these individuals and so it does seem that they're trying to just create enough chaos to, to just to get these people out of the way. And then when the vacuum of power, vacuum of leadership comes, hey, you know what? This guy spoke up some time ago. This guy is actually someone that has displayed some leadership capabilities. And I think this is what complainers do as well. What they tend to do is create enough chaos. They intend to disrupt the peace of the congregation enough so that way there's some damage done. At least they've gotten the person that they don't like out of the way or the issue that they don't like out of the way. And then what happens? They come up and they prop themselves up. Oh, oh, me? When people point and say, that guy, we want, oh, really, me? Oh, you shouldn't say that. But this is, this is the spirit of a complainer. Someone who comes and gives a complaint after complaint after complaint with no solutions and no intention to try to make things better. 
So this is, I think, just a very brief and, and I think helpful list of what a complainer looks like, a grumbler looks like, that God says, it cannot be a part of my people, that God says, it will be judged and dealt with. So that's what it looks like. Now I want to show what it leads to, because I think this is maybe even more, this is more terrifying. Because ultimately, as we already read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10, he says they were destroyed by the destroyer. Ultimately, this leads to death. It leads to destruction. God says that grumbling, complaining, if not dealt with properly, will send you to hell. It will send me to hell. If it's not something that I repent of, if I've uh, participated in it. Go over to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. James chapter 5 and verse 9. James says at the very end of this epistle, and he's already dealt with a few times the, the strife and contention that's come up between brethren. And he says that they are slanderers, they're murderers in chapter 4. They have conflicts and quarrels that should not be a part of the church. At the very end of this epistle, he says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not what? So that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. <laughs> what? ominous message what an ominous warning that remember that by the standard that you judge others you will be judged and so you better show some mercy and you better be pretty forgiving because you want that same mercy and you want that same graciousness and forgiveness from God the one who will judge us all and so it's something that is going to lead ultimately to hell turn over to Philippians chapter 2 Philippians chapter 2 in verse 13 <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2 in verse, uh, in verse 14, rather. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Now, what's interesting about this is we start with the command in verse 14. Don't grumble. Don't dispute. That shouldn't be a part of, any, uh, uh, of the church whatsoever. So that what? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. We are supposed to be a city set on a hill. We are supposed to be a beacon to the world around us. And when we are doing you know, good works in God's name, and when we are evangelizing, and when we are maybe coming to the Bible studies, and we are participating in the worship, we're doing good, godly things. But when we participate in a sin such as complaining... Just like, uh, it reminds me of a lot of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that if you do these things without love, it's moot. It doesn't matter. It nullifies all the good you've done. And in the same way, that's what we do when we complain. We may be very active in a lot of good things, but complaining undoes the good work that we might be doing. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9 that we are to be hospitable to one another without complaint. Why? Because if you're hospitable to somebody, you have them in your house, and all you do is complain about them being in your house the entire time, are you really that hospitable? Not at all. And so it undoes all of the good that you're doing. And so we can't think that we are safe just because, hey, I'm still coming to services every week. Are, are you a complainer? Is that what you spend your time doing at the services? Is that what you spend your, what your time doing as you mingle before or after services? You're undoing a lot of the good. And we're going to see just how much we may be un undoing and what damage we may be doing in just a moment. But not only that does it lead to hell, but it really, 
ultimately what we're doing is complaining about God. Go back to Exodus chapter 17. I said that we were going to look at a few passages of how Israel did this several times as they were following God and the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. Exodus chapter 17, in a story where God, and what's interesting is every time you see this word come up almost every time. It's, it's in a story where God is already providing for them, and then he's going to provide for them a little bit more, more graciously. So in verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people prayed. No, it doesn't say that. It says the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you trust the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, again, I think that there was a way that they could have handled this. I think that this was legitimate thirst. I think that the Israelites experienced thirst the way most of us just never will throughout this lifetime. But even in that case, this was not the way to deal with it. To quarrel with God's chosen leader. To to test God, Moses says. That's what I like about this, this passage in particular. Moses makes clear that though you're coming to me and you're naming me as the issue... You're not really testing me. You're testing God. And isn't that just the case over and over again throughout the scriptures? They thought that they were just complaining about Moses, but they were really complaining and testing God. And how do we do this today? Simply by complaining about God's people or God's decrees. Incessantly. Instead of maybe praying for them. Instead of maybe trying to address the issue. All we're doing is just complaining going to cause more strife, going to cause more issues because it's just not worth it. I'd rather just do this than actually have a conversation with them. And this really just leads to further testing of God. If you just look at their history, go go over to, turn the page to Exodus chapter 16, just a page uh, prior, Exodus chapter 16. When you look at Israel's history, it seems that this complaining and their grumbling only progresses. It only increases as they go throughout their journeys from Egypt while being led by God, while having this beautiful relationship with God. One of the first moments is Exodus chapter 16 and verse 1. It says, Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. So it's really not been that long since they left Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So there's two instances where they are grumbling, and specifically when they have such a beautiful relationship with God, unlike any other nation in the world at this point. What is, and, and so from the very outset, what does this display? It displays immediately ungratefulness. It displays a lack of contentment that's supposed to come with a relationship with God. They did not have it. All they had was a grumbling heart. And it shows because they continue to complain about even the blessings that they had. It was a beautiful thing to be delivered from bondage. It was a beautiful thing to be delivered from the persecution, the literal persecution of the Egyptian nation. And what are they doing? Oh, would rather be dead than experience this liberation. What morons, what fools. That's what they are. 
but it's the same spirit that we follow when we complain just like Israel and Korah. Go over to Numbers chapter 11. We already looked at Exodus 17, but Numbers chapter 11. <clears throat> Numbers chapter 11, in beginning in verse 1, and really just verse 1. Numbers chapter 11 in verse 1. Once again, they are thirsting and hungering. And it says, the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Now, before we get to the consequences, I would just like to say at the very beginning, I like the way the New American Standard puts this. The people, Israel, became like those who complain of adversity. Now, again, I think they experienced real thirst and real hunger. But if you have a relationship with God, should you ever sound like the kind of people that are constantly complaining about adversity? We have a big group of people that do that today in our country. I mean, it's just, I think it's just mainly the people that don't have God. <laughs> Unfortunately, you have a few people that are supposed to have God in their lives that still act like that. But you have myriads of people constantly complaining about the adversity in their life and the injustices in their life and the injustices surrounding them. And God's people became like that? Shame. But look specifically at the consequences that come from that kind of mindset and from that kind of character that they had developed. In this instance, it seems like because it increases and it progresses and they never truly learn their lesson that the consequences seem to start increasing as well. At this point, there's not even a warning. It's just there's immediate judgment because they did what they should not have done. And I think some people look at stories like this and say, why didn't God give them a warning? Are you kidding? Exodus 16, Exodus chapter 17, and all the time that's passed since then, he's given them a lot of warning. They should have known better. And so this judgment is completely fair and it's completely just. And so he judges them immediately, but not totally. And so you still see some mercy. But it can, the consequences increase as the grumbling does. Over in Numbers chapter 14, just another page over. <clears throat> Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, it says, All the congregation of Israel lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. You might be able to sympathize with Israel at the beginning when they said, would that we have just died in this wilderness. It's kind of like what Elijah was talking about as we looked at last week. But here, it's not just would that we had died in the wilderness. Now they're saying, I would rather have Egypt than him. And I tell you what, I think that we do this more often than we realize I would rather go back to that life than what I have with him right now. How? We complain and we grumble and we murmur. And what were the consequences? The people in, of Israel will wander in the wilderness till this generation dies out. The next generation will inherit the land. But even further than that, look at verse 36 of the same chapter. Verse 36 of Numbers chapter 14. It says, as for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land. Even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive out of those men who went to, out to spy the land because they brought back a good report. They were faithful to God. What's interesting about this is there was immediate, uh, or, or there, there's the judgment that they say the people are going to die out. This generation is not going to be able to inherit the promised land. But these men... These men are done. 
And why? Because they're the ones that caused it. And there should be a great warning there in the ones that cause others to complain, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. But when we complain, I, I tell you, when it's about one thing, I think it only encourages us to go further the next time, just like you see with Israel's example here. And you hear this frequently in our relationships. You have a husband and a wife who maybe don't have the experience that they should or, the, or the, they, they don't have the tools that they should and you hear how they talk to each other sometimes when they get into arguments and maybe one says to the other, maybe you should just shut up. That's bad enough. But I tell you, when you say just something like that just once, it tends to get worse and more severe the next time. Because what have you done? You've really just kind of hardened your heart to the utter shamefulness of saying something like that. Now it's just, you should just shut up. Next time it's probably going to be something like, I hate it when you speak. <laughs> it progresses naturally. Or they say, you act just like your no good father when you do this. It ultimately goes from that to you're just as stupid and useless as your whole family. I, it started out terribly. It just gets worse. Or you have a Christian who speaks about their brother or their sister. They say, he is such an idiot. You know where that ultimately leads? I promise you, if you keep doing that, it leads to I hate him. I despise him and I wish that I never had to see him again. That's where it goes. Look at Israel. Or we say, I wish we didn't have to go to this potluck tonight to... I hate these people. I can't stand them. That, we think it's such a small thing when we say, I just, I really don't want to see these people today. It will get worse. Don't speak that kind of foolishness. Don't speak that kind of malice. It should never come out of our mouths because this is what happens. It gets worse over time. And I'll tell you, the reason that we need to be so cautious about that, all of this is necessary to understand, but one of the main reasons is because it is a damaging and deadly influence. Going back to Numbers chapter 16, look at what Korah and Dathan and Abiram, look at what they started. After something that had never occurred before, a judgment that had never occurred before occurred on them, the earth swallowed them up and closed after them. There was victory. There was success. Those people were judged by God, and therefore, everything should go smoothly from here on out. But the very next day, in verse 41 of Numbers chapter 16, it says, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Why? They said, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. Look at what just a tiny little influence like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, even when witnessing their end, look at how corrosive and infectious that kind of attitude is. And what did we say it led to? It leads to death. But when people around us see that, when they hear these little complaints, look, that was a little complaint in comparison to the whole congregation, but it led to the whole assembly sinning against God, and it caused a plague against them. And this effect, I think, is more indirect and subtle than we realize. You know, one of the best examples I've ever heard when it comes to this a family is writing home and they're, they're talking about the lesson or they're talking about the, the Bible classes and what you have is the children in the back hearing their parents just constantly berating and, and belittling the brethren that they're surrounded by. And what happens over time? The children keep hearing that, they keep hearing that, they keep hearing that, and then they treat that person that they've been hearing that about the same way that their parents talk to them, talk about them. Their parents may never have treated that person in that way. Their kids will. Why? Because why would they treat that person so well? Why would they treat them courteously or respectfully? All they've ever heard is the people they trust most, their parents, 
hating on them. And it's not just that. Don't think that if, if you don't have kids and don't think that if you don't have close relatives surrounding you, don't think that it's still not just as infectious when your brethren hear you just a pew off. Have we gotten into conversations with someone where we don't think anybody's listening, but then we get a little angry and we just don't care who hears? That hurts. That hurts more than just you and the person you're speaking to. It hurts everyone that's listening. And so don't think that because you may go in a corner, don't think because you pull someone aside that that's not doing anything, it's doing a lot. Just like Korah, we're infecting people and we're corroding at their holiness and their purity and we're making things worse. Complaining will always lead people away from a relationship with God. We need to be so careful that we are, that the attitude that we are infecting people with is a positive one, not something as silly and awful as this. So finally, I want to end with what can we do? We talked about what it looks like. We talked about what it leads to. Now I want to say, what can we do? I'll tell you, I think that there is room for us to voice our opinions. I think there's room for us to voice the issues that we have with brethren, the issues that we have maybe with, 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 or just with, with how things are going. It's not the way Cora did it, and it's not the way that we've read about so far. So what are we supposed to do? And really what I want to do is take a book out of, uh, or take a page out of John Dryden's book and end with a challenge. If you have an issue, I'm talking about you. Yes, you, not, not anybody else, you. If you have an issue, instead of announcing it with malice as Cora did, I would say humbly bring it forth with a solution. Don't just complain without any answer. Don't just bring a problem without any, re, without any uh, way to solve it. I think that's one of the things we, one of the best ways that we can help ourselves in this. Before you even voice your issue, I would say, do I have a good way to solve this? Do I have a good solution for this? If I don't, probably best to keep my mouth shut, isn't it? Because we've already seen the consequences. And it's too great for us to go forward. So if you do have an issue, try to think of a solution. And then bring it with that solution. Say, I think I've seen a problem here. I think this is a way to fix it. That's a good way of addressing the issues that we may have. I'm not saying don't address anything because I think that makes things worse. But this is how we address it. Do it with God in mind and do it just like we see in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, those people that were grumbling, who was it that had to find men among them to take care of these needs? It was the brethren that were complaining. The apostles said, hey, you fix it. You figure it out. You find men among yourselves that have these qualifications, and then you get it done. And look what they did, and look how beautiful that, how beautifully that ended. That's the way to do it. Christians come with solutions. Christians go forward with those solutions. So if we have an issue, let's try it at the very least to come up with a solution ourselves and not just complain about it. Or maybe you have an issue with a Christian here. Maybe you have an issue with your spouse. If that's the case for you, this week, instead of voicing it, as I just said a moment ago, instead of voicing it immediately with the wittiest comment that we can, pray for them first. Do, pray immediately. Where you're so quick to speak and slow to hear, God says we need to be slow to speak, quick to hear, and we need to be quicker to pray to God. And do this, I would say, every single time you have a complaint. 
I mean it. Every single time you think in your mind this week for the next seven days, every single day, think, okay, I'm not going to go forward with that complaint. I'm going to get down on my knees and I'm going to pray to God. Or I'm just going to do a Nehemiah prayer. I'm going to say a quick prayer. Please help me not to have animus feelings. Please help me not to be negative. Please help me not to be cynical. Please help me to not look like the rest of the world around me. Help me to look more like you. And what does God look like? The standard of mercy, the standard of forgiveness, the standard of love. So first of all, pray. Now, I think that sometimes I've heard people say that, give that point before, and sometimes people will object, and maybe they're joking. I think it's a bit of a nasty joke or a nasty objection, but people might say, well, then I might just be praying all day. Honestly, good for you because it sounds like you need it. If you seriously have an issue all day, you may be the very problem. So every single time for the next week you have an issue with someone, with a Christian, with your spouse, think in these terms, I'm going to go to God in prayer. I'm going to pray for them and I'm going to pray for me. That's what I'm going to do first. Another challenge, this week if you have an issue, again, with, with a Christian or a spouse, instead of insulting them, instead of going to them and saying, I'm going I'm to tell you what's what. I'm going I'm to fix you right here and right now. I'm going to give you an attitude adjustment. Oh, I'm going to exhort you. Okay, exhort them scripturally, not the way you mean. Go to them, and if there actually is a problem between you, do what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18. You go to them and get it fixed. Or in Matthew chapter 5, if, if you think it's something you did, Fix it anyway. You're still going. I, I've noticed that there's an issue between us. I noticed that there's a shift in, our, in your personality towards me. I noticed that there's a shift in how you've been talking to me. I just wanted to make sure that everything was okay between us. That's a good way to go about it. You know what's not a good way to go about it? Well, what's your problem, sunshine? You ever heard somebody do that? You ever had somebody do that to you? I'll tell you what, people do that to me. I'm like, <laughs> guess what? You ain't getting nothing from me. And unfortunately, a lot of times that means the same love that I need to be showing. That's not the way we approach it. We approach them and we say, what can I do? How can I serve you to get this right? And beyond that, beyond just going to them and trying to make things right, I would say if you have an issue with somebody, go to them with an encouragement. Go to them not just with all the issues you have. Think beforehand and say, what are some things that I appreciate about them? Again, if you're the kind of person that says, I don't think there's anything I appreciate about them. <laughs> Again, <laughs> you may be the problem. But think, think, what are some things that I love seeing them do every Sunday, every Wednesday? What are some things that I appreciate about them? Maybe they post a verse on Facebook every now and then. I appreciate you doing that. Maybe it's, it's their infectious attitude of, of contentment that we should have and that we've talked about throughout this lesson. Maybe that's what we need to go to them with. But go to them with an encouragement and say, I love this about you, and, and I, honestly, it's something that I wish that I could embody myself. Don't just go with a list of grievances and act like they need to, to obey your every beck and call. No, this is a two-way street. We need to come, and frankly, if we're going to them, just like we were just talking about Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter four, 5, we need to be ready for them to come back with, I think you're the one with the problem. Are you willing to make things right? Are you willing to get peace for God? Then you're going to be willing to listen. So I would challenge all of us, challenge myself this week. I promise you, I'm not just preaching to you. I'm preaching to me. We all need this. Make sure that, 
as, as Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter 2, that as we're doing the good works that we are doing, that as we are doing God's work, that we are not sullying that work and, and nullifying that work, making it void by acting like the rest of the world around us, complaining and grumbling and disputing with everyone, particularly those that we're supposed to be closest with. Let's be that, that example this week. Let's be that example to one another. Let's be that example to those that don't have God. And let's show everyone around us what it means to look like Christ. Don't you like that? I, I think that's a beautiful invitation. In fact, it's the gospel invitation. That's what God asks each and every one of us to do. If you're a Christian and you've gone astray from that path, walking after the footprints of Jesus, he says, you need to come back. Keep looking more like me. If you're not a Christian, he says, that's what I want ultimately for you to look like me. I want you to be merciful as I am. I want you to be forgiving as I am. I want you to be loving as I am. I want you to make the choices that I do. Think the way I do. And I tell you, when you look at the character of Jesus, when you just read about him as we've been doing in the Bible class, doesn't that just fill you with some level of excitement and joy to look more like Jesus? I'll take that over any other invitation the world gives us today. Are you willing to follow after him? Are you willing to become a servant, a disciple? You can make that happen this morning. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward. Let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.